Success means, you know, you as an artist can make a living doing your art. And whatever the national average is in terms of salary per year, we want every artist on track at that level to get to that level of freedom and beyond even. Yeah, we're building for that success story and then some. That's like the bare minimum for us. But yeah, we hope to create, you know, the next superstar. Not create, but we hope to help support the next superstar by giving them the tools to make the business side and, you know, management side of their catalog super easy. Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip-hop culture to the next level. Today's episode is all about where Web2 and Web3 meet each other in the music industry. It has been a roller coaster past couple of years in terms of NFTs, Web3, crypto, and how all of it makes sense for artists, musicians, record labels, and more. To help make sense of where we are and where things are going, I sat down with Cardin Campbell, who is the founder of Track. Track is on a mission to empower artists to reach their fans more closely than ever, whether that's by distributing their music directly to the digital streaming providers or through NFTs so that their most passionate fans can get early access and a small ownership stake in their music moving forward. Track is also one of Trapital's sponsors, so it was great to be able to talk with them about their solutions more deeply and how they're serving artists. In this conversation, we also talked about some of the other challenges that happen with music distribution, such as when you have those superstar artists, how do you keep them on board? We also talked about broader trends in Web3, where things are going, what some companies are getting right, wrong, and more. Really great conversation. I like the way Cardin sees things. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's my chat with Cardin Campbell. All right, today we got a full conversation on deck. We're going to talk about where Web2 and Web3 meet each other with someone that is living and breathing this every day. Cardin Campbell, founder of Track. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, definitely. I feel like you and I have had a few conversations about this and the industry has been in such a fascinating place right now. You look at the past year and a half with yeah. Web3, crypto, NFTs, it's been a roller coaster in terms of where the industry is, where people stand, where companies stand and where they're focusing yeah. on. How do you feel like we are right now? What's your macro take on where the industry is right now with regards to Web3? I think the industry is in an interesting place. I think we're still trying to find that wedge of where Web3 or this concept of Web3, you know, aids music in any way. You know, I think a lot of people are trying to think of it like this separate space and, you know, this place where you can sell more of stuff and, and generate more revenue for the industry. And I think that can happen, but I don't think it's going to happen in a way that we've been approaching it to date, you know? But yeah, I think we're still trying to find our wedge ultimately is where we currently are. Yeah, I think one of the challenges was that there were so many cool and nifty ideas that people had about what something could look like. But at the end of the day, you needed to have a real functional 
aspect that would add value in a way that you're either making something easier for the consumer or you are making it more unique in a way. And I feel like a lot of the things that are being pushed were more focused on, oh, here's this cool, almost wonky idea of what something could look like as opposed to, boom, here's a fundamental shift change into how things were and how things could be moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's really like, you know, the classic case of entrepreneurship and startup, right? It's like, you try to find a problem to solve and then solve that problem. Whereas with Web3, there's so many cool things you could do with it. And people were just like building cool things and then trying to find a problem, you know, later, right? So I think that's why we're still trying to find our wedge in the whole space. But because it's just been a case of, oh, we can do this and do that. And, and like, wouldn't this be nice? You know, but not really centralizing, you know, the focus on problems to solve, right? And then solving it, yeah. And as you look back on it yourself as someone that's been following the industry to, to a deep extent yourself, do you feel like there are parts where you yourself are like, huh, maybe I had overstated where I thought this was going to go? Because I think that each of us probably bought into some of the hype and potential to at least some extent. Yeah. So I still feel like we have, you've got it right to a degree and I'll explain, right? So a lot of people approach Web3 music in this like way of thinking of it like it's another medium, you know, for people to consume music, to buy it, like it's a collectible. And I think that's the wrong approach. That's just my personal feeling. I've always thought that and probably will always think that until I'm convinced otherwise, right? Because you can't really treat it like a new medium when Spotify and Apple, you know, has the fan experience, you know, being the best it's ever been. Like, I feel like discovery has been solved, you know what I mean? Like the algorithms and all the things that they provide to help you discover new music and just have access to all the songs right there is the best it's ever been. So companies that's been approaching it where they're thinking, oh, Web3, we can generate NFTs out of songs and sell them. I don't know that that's it. Like, I hope I'm wrong because it feels like an opportunity, right? To generate more revenue for the industry, but I don't think that that's it. Because we've seen iTunes come and go, right? They were selling a digital file that was the MP3 for a dollar. And that was cool for its time, but then we shifted to streaming. They bought Beats and turned into Apple Music and it, right, like it shifted. So I don't think that that's it. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, the focus has been. And I think that's where people are getting it wrong because it's not another, you know, medium, so to speak. That's a good point because I do think that part of the reason that streaming took off and a lot of this was in conflict to what Steve Jobs himself thought. He, of course, is one of the big proponents of iTunes. And I think for its time, iTunes, especially when did it launch? 2003, I believe. Yeah, that like was that. the answer at the time. You could buy your favorite yeah. song for 99 cents or $1.29, whatever it was at the time. But yep. after a while, consumers really didn't want to do that. And I feel like one of the reasons why Spotify worked, granted, I know that the company has had its own ups and downs over the years. But one of the reasons why I think Spotify works is because it met consumers where they were at. People wanted to have access that at the time mattered more than ownership. So some of these things that are going back more to ownership, like whether it's companies or models that you're referencing, it brings yeah. us back to that. And it's not that people don't want to own things. They clearly do. You see the boom of vinyls and other things. It's just Absolutely. not ownership in the way that we may have thought or that some of these companies right. may have thought. Yeah. And when you think about it from an ownership standpoint, like, you don't technically own the MP3 when you bought it from iTunes. 
And when you're selling an away file or an MP3 as an NFT, which is the same thing, you don't technically own it. You only like access to it, like your copy right? of it. Yeah, your copy of it. Exactly, exactly. So you know, I just don't think that's the right approach. Now, I think the mistake people are making in Web three in particular is trying to mirror what we've seen happen with PFP NFTs, right? Like they you know, collect them and it has this, you know, extreme high value from the doodles and the, you know, crypto punks and the board apes and all that. They're trying to mirror that. But fine art or the representation of art as NFTs in Web3 is a different thing than collecting music, right? Like you can't collect the MP3. Like you, I mean, I guess you can, like you did with CDs and vinyl, but I think that's dead. I think that's where we're trying to like force something to be what it's not, right? Music is valuable when millions of people listen to it and love it. Whereas fine art, it's like a one of one thing and that's where the value comes from. You know, I think the more apples to apples comparison with music and fine art is the actual royalty. Now that's the product of music and we have two of them. So music is just way more nuanced and more dynamic than fine art is. And I think, you know, those companies that are approaching it from the let's collect the MP3 or the WAV file or sell it as this thing, you know, to consume it like another medium. I think that's all wrong. And like I said, I hope I'm wrong because I support anybody in the space trying to build a better tomorrow for music creators and the artists, right, to make more money. But I just don't think that's necessary. I do think the royalty side is it, but the SEC makes it complicated. Let's talk more about this because when I think of the whole one of one thing, of course, the physical example, you think about that Wu-Tang album, the Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, that was essentially a one of one. And I know that that's traded hands a few different times more recently as last year. But I guess if we're thinking about it from your lens, you're saying that that isn't necessarily the product since obviously it can be copied and replicated in the same way that you and I could have a replica of the Mona Lisa in our house. The real value is the actual recording itself. So you feel like the royalty or at least that piece is the piece to focus on. Yeah, that's where the value is. Like when we see all these companies buying catalog, you know, they're buying the royalties, right? Whether the publishing side or the masters, right? Like that's where the money is. That's where the value is. That's the asset, right? Sure, you can replicate that thing, you know, the Wu-Tang example. And I think Nipsey Hussle might have did something too at one point in time, selling his album for a thousand bucks. But that to me is a marketing thing. That's like a part of an album rollout. And if you have the cachet like Wu-Tang had and Nipsey had, you can do those things. Right. But when you think about doing this at scale where every artist can, you know, benefit and embrace this new model or approach, that's when it starts to break down. And that's when you know it's like, that's not it. That's not the answer. You mentioned the SEC part of it before, and I think we've seen a few different challenges from some companies that have tried to do creative things where fans could either buy a NFT or that could get them some fractional ownership of the music moving forward and then what that actually looks like. There are companies such as Songbest and others that have gone through the securitization process. How do you view that aspect and how do you feel like that aspect of the ownership or what you may see on Royalty Exchange or one of those types of platforms? So I think of it in two ways. So I love it because fractionalizing the actual asset is a beautiful thing, right? The SEC though, I think, I could be wrong, but I think from what I've been hearing and reading, the SEC 
thinks of it as a security the minute it's fractionalized. And then you have to go through the whole regulatory process and it just kills the flexibility you can have. It kills the scalability you can have with it if it's on the blockchain and it's, it doesn't have to go through this regulatory you can like BS. So that's one side. On the other side, you know, we now have a different audience that we're like selling these things to because the casual fan is not the audience as much as we think it is. Like there's a Venn diagram that exists, right? That says, yep, we have some fans that are investors, but truly who we're targeting are what we're talking about, investors of music, people who value catalog and wants to own it. And yeah, that's just a different beast. And that's why we haven't seen it like really take off like you would think, in my opinion, because we haven't like really targeted the fan just yet and find something that they would value just as much as the consumption of the music. Two questions for you on that. Let's start with the actual fans themselves and some of the misreading that I think people had on whether or not the average fan would want to invest in or own a piece of a stake in the fan, the artist's music. Why do you think that there was an overstate or an overassumption of how much a fan would be interested in there? Because that was a pretty popular point for some time. Right. I don't know. I think, you know, it sounds cool. It sounds like, oh, wow. Like if, you know, we have billions of people in the world that love music. I think the last time I checked, I think six plus billion people listen to music every day. So when you think about like the total accessible market, you're like, oh shit, that's a huge market. And if we can fractionalize this one asset and sell it to a bunch of people, and then they can sell it to, amongst themselves, your head explodes, right? At the potential scale of this thing. But with the regulatory you know, stuff and then the fact that fans aren't really investors, it's kind of like womp womp, right? It's like, that's when you realize it's like not as sexy as, as it sounds in theory and on, on paper. Yeah, the analogy that I've always used with it is I think if you look at the popularity of something like Apple and the iPhone and all their products, so many people have the Apple phones themselves, but that doesn't mean that all those people necessarily have Apple stock in that way. There's a different type of person that's going to be the retail investor in Apple stock than the person that is still going to buy a MacBook, an iPhone, an iPad, and everything else that they have, AirPods, you name it. I think there was an uh, overestimation there. And then I think additionally, just with the psychology of how a fan thinks and interacts with music, I think sometimes this is part of the challenge with confusing things with sports, because I think that people looked at the popularity of fantasy football and just gambling Mm -hmm. and how gambling has exploded, the monetization in sports in general. And I know that several music executives have asked me, like, what could this look like? And I know that there's startups that have tried to do more of the fantasy sports for music, but it's a different fan base and it's a different type of experience and product. And what a lot of these fans are into, at least from if they want to have something beyond just the $9.99 per month that they pay for Spotify, they want to collect a vinyl, they want to have some piece of merch, they want to go to a concert. They want things that don't necessarily always lead to actual like cash value that they could trade in in the long term, but they want something that means something to them. Yeah, they want something that shows how much of a fan they are of that particular band or artist. And yeah, like, you know, in a nutshell, fans aren't investors and investors and fans aren't gamers. Like in the fantasy football example, like three different customer base right there, three different audience, three different personas. There's a Venn diagram, like I said, but by and large, there are three different people. 
Definitely. And I think one of the other things, too, that you touched on earlier was just where Web 2 and where Web 3 meet each other, because I think that a lot of the early Web 3 excitement was around people pointing out some of the challenges that exist for the digital streaming providers and the payouts that they give to artists and seeing Web3 as a solution to that, to put more inherent value on music. And I think a lot of those things sound good. But I do think that the more actual reality, as you've said, both here and even in past conversations we've had, is where the two of these meet each other. And from your perspective, what do you think the best approaches or some of the best things you've seen look like where you do see web two and web three meet each other in music to actually provide value for fans. Right. So I guess let's define what web three means by starting with web one, right? So the definition that I've used, you know, with people is web one is read, web two is read, write, web three is read, write, all right. And what I encourage people to do is not think of them as three separate spaces, they're actually a stack, a capability stack, let's call it, right? That, you know, you had one capability in web one, we can read things like a magazine, which is why it's called a web page, because it's like a page of a magazine. We read writers, you know, the era right now where you can post things on social and leave comments and write all kinds of things on the web. And web three is read, write, own. I think it's just another capability that we now have and I think stacking it in that way is where the value is. You still want to give people the experience and the you know, UX of Web2, but the invisible, immutable experience that the blockchain also has and provides. So I think when you think about Web3 music, the way we're approaching it is, yeah, let's give them the user experience in Web2, but let's also write their royalties and their ownership on the blockchain so it's immutable, it's saved forever, no one can take it away from them, which solves a problem that exists in the industry today. Because a lot of the industry is still on pen and paper. It's not very digitized just yet. So I think Web3 gives us an opportunity to digitize the music industry in ways that we've never been able to do before, beyond just a PDF or whatever, right? It's like, yeah, these are real assets. We can put them on the blockchain and keep them there. And I think, you know, if we think about it from that perspective, the blockchain and Web3 music is more of a B2B play between the creators and the rights holders themselves. And it makes it really scalable to send, exchange and trade these royalties in a space that is immutable and no one can change it, no one can take it away. Because we've heard Snoop say, you know, man, the first couple of albums at Death Row, I wrote, what's a publishing check? I never saw a publishing, I wrote 70% of the chronic and I wrote, that would never happen in this new era with the way we're approaching Web3 music. It's like, hey, let's publish your work, write it to the blockchain, you own it, it's in your wallet, no one can take it away, right? And if we can streamline that and make that a standard, I think we would solve a lot of problems. And then once everybody has their stuff in their wallet, yeah, there can be a space where we, in Web2, give them the ability to trade it with each other, sell it amongst each other, sell it to a hypnosis or whomever, but it's all immutable. That's my thoughts. And then with that, where are you right now at track with making that a reality for artists? So it's a reality already for us. Like we built the tech, right? It's now about getting the artists that have valuable assets to use it in a way that's meaningful, right? And the challenge is at what point do you make that right to the blockchain? Is it 
in the studio at the creation process? I don't think so. Is it at the point of distribution, which is why we launched distribution, right? Because I believe that's where the cutoff is from the creative process to the business of music. So we're betting on that being the right space and right place for it. So yeah, we built the tech stack. We built the product. We're now going after the artists that can you know, evangelize the solutions and make it meaningful, basically. And then are there any artists that you can share or any examples from, oh yeah, this is an artist that's doing what we're envisioning? Yeah, we, we have some you know up and coming artists that's like really, really growing. Like one artist on our platform, his name is MRG. He is like killing it. He started with us from the very beginning with barely no you know, monthly Spotify listeners to now he has over 400,000. And we're, you know, we're in talks with, you know, major label artists that, that are no longer on major label deals that we want to use the platform and, you know, like make this thing a reality. So it's, it's really about like putting it together, bringing it together in a meaningful way. It would be nice if we can like make this thing scale to all distributors, right? But the problem is, you know, it's also attached to payments, right? So we have to like really showcase this and make it, you know, big first, I think, before we can like, yeah, like scale it to everybody else. But ultimately, right. we would love to do that and be the, the central solution for it all. Yeah, I feel like with these things, especially in a space like distribution, one or two success stories with those normally help get the eyeballs and they see, oh, okay, yeah. this person did. No different than any of the headlines we see. You see what, whether it's the chain smokers or you see what Blau or some of these other artists have done, and then that generates the yeah. attention there. For sure, for sure. And then thinking about that specifically, I know something else that you've touched on with this is just the idea of how artists can use windowing specifically as a Tatic yeah. to be able to use both Web 2 and Web 3 and being able to meet and serve the audience where they're at. How do you see that factoring in? Yeah, so the reason why we thought of like doing it this way is another problem to solve in the industry besides, you know, getting assets written to the blockchain so that they're immutable and people own their stuff and no one can take it from them. That's one thing. Another problem in the industry is that artists typically don't know who their fans are. They just don't. They're consumed so much by all the DSPs and even social platforms, but they don't really know who their fans are. And we've seen, you know, platforms like Community and, you know, come, come up and try to give, you know, artists that ownership of their fan base. But so I think, the way we're approaching it is if we can give an artist the opportunity to give away an NFT to their fan base, like it's an early listen to an album or a single, so long as they pre-save the song on Spotify and that pre-save will unlock the NFT and give them access to listen to it early, that then gives us an opportunity to share that fan to the artist and build a community for them. And what it also do, another benefit is it trains the Spotify algorithm to say, oh, we have a bunch of pre-saves. That means this song must be good or this album must be good. It automatically gets added to the algorithm, the algorithmic playlist on Spotify. So it's like this nice, you know, recursive flywheel effect if we can, you know, apply that using NFTs, right? And, you know, you technically can do it without NFTs, but we feel like the NFT can then now have another life beyond that. So if the artist is doing a show somewhere and that person who did the pre-save just so happened to be there and bought a ticket in, that NFT could be a backstage pass or something. So it just unlocks the opportunity, multiple different opportunities, the way we think about it and the way we're going to approach it. But yeah, windowing is, I think, a necessary thing. We've seen the platforms try it without success. 
I think the success can be realized at the aggregator level because we're not dependent on any of them, right? And the artists can, you know, own the fan and give them an experience that none of the individual DSPs can, you know? So that's kind of how we're thinking about it and approaching it. Speaking of window wing, you may have just saw the news that Snoop Dogg is re-releasing Death Row Records, but he's giving TikTok a one-week exclusivity through their sound on wow. service before putting it on streaming. And that was interesting because, at least to my knowledge, I had yet to see an artist or at least, you know, a former major label artist do anything like that. So Yeah, we've seen, you know, the Carters do it, right, with title. I don't think it's been successful, this windowing at the platform level, that is. But yeah, I hadn't heard that, but that's interesting to see him do it. So with this, you're saying that, of course, this isn't at the platform level, but they're saying whatever digital student provider that you use, you can pre-save this song, you get exclusive access to listen to it on the provider of your choice, whichever one that you're already subscribed to. We're going to give them a space to listen to it at the artist level on track on our platform. Like we spin up a page for them to listen outside of the platforms early. That's what the NFT gives you. It's like a, a token into that listening experience. And then once the release date hits, you get that notification from your streaming platform of choice that, hey, the release is here. And you can go listen, you know, as much as you want. Got it. And as you yeah. all were thinking through it, even just channeling back to the earlier part of this conversation, when you were thinking through, okay, a lot of the NFT things didn't exactly work out in the same way. There seems to be some type of consumer disconnect in terms of what they may have valued and what they didn't. What was the value add for this one, for this idea that was like, yeah, you know what? I think a consumer would be interested in this particular type of NFT that we'd be having. Yeah, the benefit is, you know, for both the artist and the fan. For the fan, they get to listen to the song or the album early. And for the artist, they get that pre-save, which trains the algorithm to you know add it to playlists in the future so that's the benefit for both personas in, in this use case got it that makes sense and then for you all specifically i know i mentioned sound on earlier there's a number of music distribution services out there and you talk to different artists yeah. and i think a lot of them can sometimes feel like they can be a bit commoditized in terms of the roles that they have but how do you feel like track stands out in that regard and what are some of the things you've done to help track stand out so it isn't seen as just another option another yeah so when we thought about the space music tech we thought web3 first but we're like we want to be in a position to help artists maximize their earning potential so monetization was the central thing for us and with that in mind we thought Another problem in the industry is, you know, the payments and the speed of the payments. So when we launched the platform, we lost distribution. We said, why wait two, three months to get your money? We're going to pay you out weekly. And we saw it went viral for us. It was like, holy shit, like who would have thought that this would happen? But, you know, when you think about entrepreneurship, like I said, when you're solving a problem, you know, it tends to go viral. So that's our differentiator. We want to be known as the platform that gets you your money fast. And with distribution, we unlock a bunch of other value around, like to where it feels like magic. We don't want to be known as just a distributor necessarily. So even though that's where we started, but yeah, we get you your money fast and we unlock value at the point of distribution is what we say. So the minute you, you know, release your music, we also take your cover art and put it on merch. We get you syncs, like it just unlocks value around without you having to do anything else. It's literally one action, value creation is our value proposition. 
And this is the value prop you're pushing to artists, artist managers specifically is definitely the target that you're trying to reach there. And how would you say that's been on the customer acquisition side? What does that look like for you? And what are the most effective ways that track is used to be able to get artists and their managers on board? So product-led growth is interesting, right? Because it's like, it scales and you don't need a bunch of people to acquire people, just do some digital ads, people come, the product, you know, converts them, oh, happy day. While that's great, you don't typically, you know, at a high clip that is, find your target audience. And you definitely have to then shift to more of a sales-led approach to acquire that target audience. So we are building out, you know, a team of biz dev folks, ARs, to go after our target audience with, you know, the value propositions we just talked about earlier to bring on, you know, the folks we feel like is our core managers and artists at a certain caliber. And what is that caliber? How would you define that? We define it as an artist with two hundred and fifty thousand monthly Spotify listeners. That's our core. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And then with that, is it also, I guess, a vision in the artist's mind of, okay, if I'm at 250K now, this is where I want to get to, or this is where I can get to, like with Tracks help? Yeah. That's how we want to you know, position the brand. It's like, hey, when you're at this point, we want to get you to that next level, that next level being success. For us, well, firstly, I guess I got to define what success means for us. Success means, you know, you as an artist can make a living doing your art and whatever the national average is in terms of salary per year, we want every artist on track at that level to get to that level of freedom and beyond even. Yeah, we're building for that success story and then some. That's like the bare minimum for us. But yeah, we hope to create, you know, the next superstar, not create, but we hope to help support the next superstar by giving them the tools to make the business side and you know management side of their catalog super easy. Yeah, and one of the benefits that I think I often see with distribution services that stand out is that there's so much discussion right now about independence, ownership, and artists wanting to have more rights that they can stay the course and they can do that with a service that can grow with them. And I do think that after a while, the power laws do tend to take over to some extent where, of course, I understand the goal is to make sure that everyone can reach at least some minimum viable level, but inevitably there will be a handful of stars that do end up having the outsized returns, hopefully on a lot of these platforms. But then it also becomes the flip side of that challenge, which is keeping those people happy yeah. because they start getting offers from elsewhere about other things. How has that piece been? Yeah. So on one side, you know, people say, don't worry about it, right? Like there's nothing wrong with helping an artist grow and then graduate, let's say, right? I don't want to think of that as like the standard or the norm because I think, yeah, like that feels like failure to me, right? Like if you support an artist and they get to a certain level and they go take a big check, that feels like we didn't do our job well of educating them on why that may not be the best move, right? Like getting a big check doesn't really mean it's a success, right? So yeah, we're, we're trying to find the right medium. It's really me, like trying to find acceptance and saying, yeah, you know what? It's okay if they move on to a label or, or somewhere else, take a big check. But yeah, I don't want to accept that right now. I feel like we need to get them to a certain level and, and make sure that they are educated enough to stay there, you know? And that that's 
not only education, but maybe helping them build a team that can support them, you know, as much as they need, you know, as they grow. Because that's really where I think the the drop-off is. It's like they feel like, oh, the label will do everything for me. But they don't realize your team outside the label is just as important, if not more important than the, the label themselves, you know? Because we've seen it time and time again where you're forgotten, you know, even though you're a signed artist. Like Frank Ocean is a perfect example, right? So, yeah, I think the market share is also shifting so much so that, like, the role of the label eventually changed. That's my prediction. And we're betting that we can establish a relationship with the labels that is different from the one that exists today. At least that's what I'm imagining will happen. Yeah, this is an interesting topic because I feel that on one hand, there is something to be said for, as you mentioned it yourself, artists moving on from one thing to the other. People are always switching things or sometimes people are trying things differently. They may go to something else. Like we've seen that a few with how artists may do deals with Empire or a label like that. They do one album and then they choose to do something else on their own. And it's interesting because I do think that on a lot of the music distribution services, you do technically have the ability to earn as much as you want and continue to maintain ownership and move forward with all the things, which is great. The other side, some of the checks that artists do get, and I'm not even saying I advocate for this, some of those checks, it's different when there's $50 million in front of you and that's what the label's giving you. It changes the conversation. For sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But being, you know, a Web3 company, like, and that's possible in Web3, we're, we're hoping to do some things in DeFi that can challenge that, like challenge that, like, greatly. So, yeah, I can't really talk about too much because it's not baked yet. But, yeah, like, we're, we're planning to, you know, combat that somehow, you know. Yeah, I, I don't feel like graduating them to a you know a state or a place where the problems exist is the right thing. Even though the check is you know is lovely, right? It's like is is it really lovely? You know? Yeah, I don't know. And I guess with this, and of course I think we're talking qualitatively, but on a quantitative side, how does this impact churn or any of the more specific benchmarks that you may be evaluating things on? We, yeah, we, we, we're not there in our maturity yet to really like factor that on. But it's an interesting question, interesting mental model to, to, to play with for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it could be a good acquisition strategy to say, hey, look, Trek got all these artists signed to all these major labels. So we have like a big funnel of people coming in, but then a smaller funnel of people going out. Like, yeah, I don't know if that's... That's not the definition of success for me. So I, I try not to like embrace it too much, you know? Yeah. No. That- I, I, I really hope to solve the problems in the, in the music space in, 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 in every way. It's a, it's a tough, tall order, but I'm an entrepreneur. I can't help it. <laughs> what excites you most about the space right now? I know we've talked about a number of things, but what excites you most right now? What excites me most is the digitization of the the business of music, um, the immutability of the, the, the assets and making payments um, work at scale, right? Like, I think waiting two, three months is BS to me. Like, it doesn't need to be done that long. I think with the blockchain and with money now being native uh, on the internet and trust being like almost solved on the internet with, with Web3, 
okay, there's so many opportunities there. So that's where my heart is and that's where we're trying to build, but it's just tough with regulations and tough with user adoption and, you know, all these complicated technologies and whatnot. So that's why, we, you know, we think of the capability stack, as I, as I talked about it, it's, it's, it's just another layer. We shouldn't be inundating artists and fans and people with wallets and all these weird and wonderful things. Like it should just be seamless. So yeah, that's where my heart is. That's what keeps me up at night. That's what, you know, brings me joy in thinking about, yeah, I, I can't wait for five years to roll off and we're like, oh shit, Cardin was right. Like, look at, look at what we built, you know? Like, yeah, that's, that's what excites me. You talked about wallets and maybe some of the confusion that fans may have with things. And from that, I can pull out some of the friction that has existed with Web3 experiences more broadly. Can you speak about that piece of it? Because we haven't touched on that, but I do feel like that's been part of the barrier for some of the Web3 adoption as well, in that the people that are Web3 enthusiasts, that was no barrier for them. They were already native, but some of that venn diagram of who is a hardcore fan versus who is a web3 enthusiast those things didn't necessarily always interact in the same way if they did then great that's your demo but i think that at least historically up until this point a lot of the companies and a lot of the things they've been launching attracted more of the enthusiasts than they did some of the super fans and i think the friction of the wallets and metamasks and some of those things that you needed to be able to fully tap in Play yeah. a factor. It, it's a big barrier of entry for the mass. Um, and I think, you know, over time, the more investments that go into the infrastructure side of Web3 to make it more seamless. And, and like I said, a part of the, the value stack and the, the capabilities more, more seamlessly. I think that's where the, the beauty is, which is why we built all of our Web3 stuff on Flow. Um, not only were they an investor, but we, we believe in how they want to approach it because it's the same, you know, I, I think about it in, in the same way. Yeah, like no one wants to have to go get this other tool just to interact with the internet, right? We've already invented the browser. That's it, right? Like that should be the standard thing and it should just be seamless. So yeah, that's how that's how we think about it. It's interesting because I agree with you. I think it should be seamless. I've also heard this ongoing debate from a few other folks within the Web3 community about they feel like there's pushback on this notion of things that are in Web3 need to seem like they're less crypto or seem like they're less Web3. And then that's how you get people bought in because of some of that stigma. And I don't think that the stigma necessarily was as much about the actual function as much as it was people, you know, kind of pointing and laughing at a hype. It's almost brings me back to the dot-com bubble in a lot of ways because yeah, people, some people may have laughed at the internet at the time and there were laughable things that people were trying to do like, you know, delivering ice cream cones to people and (laughs) pets.com and stuff like that. But what we're now in is this world where everything relies on it. And I think that is the most bullish perspective on Web3 more broadly. And I do think that still exists and will exist. I think that we just had to get past a lot of that. And if anything, this post-pandemic wave of things coming back to reality and the 97% drop in NFT volume that you'd seen from that Bloomberg report, that's all a sign that, okay, there's no more million dollar pet rocks. That was the wave and we're on now on to hopefully bringing the real businesses to come to fruition. Yeah, we gotta solve problems. That's the bottom line. We gotta solve problems. It's 
technology at the end of the day that we can use to do that, solve a problem. And, you know, just as we don't think of companies as not being a web company, like, you know, I think that's just what we got to think of it as. Like, you're a web company, whether it's web one, two, or three, it doesn't matter. Like, you just, you are a company that embraces the internet, whether that's web three or web two. Like, I think that the technicals shouldn't matter. Like, no one, you know, says, oh, you know, I went to Amazon.com and ordered something and, you know, it was written to a NoSQL DB and like, no one cares. Like what's underneath is like irrelevant, you know? So that's how seamless it has to be to really like break through, solve problems and give people immutability and, and trust and native currencies on the internet to make it like truly, truly seamless. I th- we'll get there. You know, we just need to get through, like you said, this pet rocks <laughs> movement and solve, start solving some problems, which is what we're doing and what we're working on. It's a marathon, not a race, you know, not a sprint. So, yeah. Agree. I think we'll get there too. And would you think maybe more in the short term, let's look at in the next year from now, if things with what you're building with track play out the way that you think it will, if you look at the business model you have where on the distribution side, you do take a cut of any of the revenue that comes in from the songs that you distribute. And then I assume on the Web3 side of things, you would also take a small percentage of any of the transactions that come through on that side, where do you project that your revenue mix will most likely come from when you compare the web two side of things, when you compare the web three side of things? Yeah. Music has always been a transactional business, right? It's always been a, you know, we add value here and, you know, we take a percentage of whatever revenue is generated from that relationship, you know, experience. So I think that's going to always be the case. Even like when you look at companies like Shopify, on the surface, you might think, oh, they're a subscription you know, business model. Yes, it is. But 70% of their revenue is transactional. Less than 30% actually is subscription. So I think that's going to be the typical mix with any company in our space, whether there's a subscription att- you know, attached to you know, an artist plan or, or whatever. And if we take a percentage, we just approach it differently than most where we take a percentage where we add value. So, you know, back to what I was saying earlier, when we launched with speedy payouts, we get your money in a week after the stream happened versus two months. That's when we take a percentage versus some companies say, we're going to take 20% just to deliver your song to Spotify. That's bullshit to me. You know, so yeah, it's going to be a mix of, you know, different, you know, streams of revenue, some subscription because you need a paywall just to make sure you're dealing with serious people. That's the subscription side, but I think the majority of it's going to be from the revenues generated from that relationship being established. And if we can add, you know, a little bit more service to our mix to help an artist even grow even more, that's another example of adding value to the warrant you taking a percentage. But yeah, I think the transactional revenue is going to be the, the lion's share of where the revenue comes from. That's what I was going to ask about next, because I know that if we take that Shopify example further, they have their white club or their white glove enterprise yeah. offering for the clients that they hope that they can keep that don't go create their own website or create their exactly. own stack. Right. And uh, yeah. tying back to what we said earlier, that would be, I assume, how you all would try to make sure you keep those superstar yeah. potential artists on track Absolutely. as opposed to doing their thing. Yeah, yeah. We, we're building out a concierge team as we speak. We just hired a sales guy that, that can help those clients, those artists and artist teams, you know, achieve goals that they might have and, and really have 
a more intimate relationship with them. So one might say, well, that's a label. Like, we think of it like any other business that you know sells a software license that gives you an account manager. That's how we think of it. So it's like Salesforce. You pay them a million dollars for software, guess what? They're going to make sure you have a success manager to make sure that you achieve your goals so that you can renew every year, every year, every year. So that's kind of how we're approaching the business for that top tier and hopes that they don't go graduate, as they say, to some label. And if money is the carrot that pulls them away, like I said, we're hoping to solve some of that problem with some DeFi, Web3 shit too, you know? And I think if that's what it, things come to, then those are good problems to have, as I always yeah, say. Right? Absolutely. Those are good absolutely. problems to have. Yeah. Well, Cardin, this is great. Appreciate the breakdown on everything related to track, where things are moving forward, and just good to hear where you see things moving with the industry. I think a lot of companies are trying to see where things sit and what you're building is a reminder that you don't have to pick between one, find a way to integrate it into your business model and potentially do both of them. So yeah, before we let sure. you go, what's the best way for whether it's an artist manager or for anyone else that's listening, that's in the space to follow along with what Track is doing? You can go to track.co or go to our social track.co, I think everywhere and follow along, you know, all the things we're talking about. You know, we're doing a lot more on the content side as well to just to educate the artist and you know talk about the problems that exist and how we are the wedge or the solution for those problems so yeah i think our website and our socials would be a great place to start and then yeah we can take it from there good stuff Cardin. thanks again and it's always great to have a fellow jamaican on too so appreciate you Absolutely. Yeah, man, yeah, man. <laughs> cool brother you enjoyed this podcast go ahead and share it with a friend copy the link text it to a friend post it in your group chat post it in your slack groups wherever you and your people talk spread the word that's how traffic continues to grow and continues to reach the right people and while you're at it if you use apple Podcasts, go ahead rate the podcast give it a high rating and leave a review tell people why you like the podcast that helps more people discover the show thank you in advance talk to you next week Oh,